Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina knows the value of giving pets the absolute best. That's why they only use trustworthy ingredient sources in their pet foods, and every ingredient in their products has a purpose. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 5th. Hi, wait, why can't I hear you? Because I didn't hit unmute. <laughs> that would make sense. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Thank you for taking the time to get on the phone. This is Charlotte Cudd. She lives in Jacksonville, Florida, and she is a Post Reports listener. She'd written me an email a while back earlier in the pandemic when we were asking people for their questions about COVID. I think it was a previous episode had talked about, um, God, I don't even remember now. I think it was a story (laughs) about like medical stuff or or blood clotting or something. Yeah. And in her email, she had brought up this series of issues that I hadn't really thought about when it comes to COVID. Stuff like end-of-life decisions and palliative care and also about organ donations. So I've always wanted to be an organ donor because it's such a low amount of donors that match those who are desperately in need of it. And I wanted to know, if you are dying of COVID, are you allowed to be an organ donor? So that was the question. Can you donate your organs if you die from COVID? And I I didn't know the answer to that. I looked online, I didn't see the answer anywhere. And so I thought that maybe it would be worth making a few calls to try to get an answer for Charlotte. That's where I started from. But what I ultimately found ended up being so much more complicated about all these ways that the organ transplant system in the U.S. has been turned completely upside down by COVID. And one of the people who told me about that was a guy named Kevin. I was going to say, you (laughs) look like you're in your closet. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Simunt is the CEO of an organization in Chicago called Gift of Hope. Gift of Hope is the organ and tissue donor network that covers Illinois and Northwest Indiana. Kevin's organization is in charge of talking to families after their loved one has died to see if they might agree to organ donation. And if they do, they're the ones who coordinate to get the organ from the donor to the person on the transplant list. Our job is to meet families on arguably the worst day of their lives when they've lost someone almost always suddenly and tragically. And uh, the circumstances are such that we can change the end of that story to one of hope and renewal through organ and tissue donation. So to understand this question of whether you can donate your organs if you die of COVID, you have to understand how exactly organ donation works. Because most people who die are not actually in a position to have their organs donated. To, to be a candidate, you basically have to be brain dead. You've had to have a, a stroke or some kind of traumatic injury, and your brain has ceased to have any significant neurological activity. So you're dead by most legal and scientific definitions, but the rest of your body still has to be kept alive. With the help of ventilators and blood pumping machines, and your organs have to be in very good condition. And that's part of why COVID becomes a big problem for organ donation. If they die of COVID, they're probably not going to be organ donors because they're not going to be brain dead. Their organs are just going to fail. And 
even if they're like, let's say that someone dies in a in a car crash, is there still a concern that you know COVID wasn't sure. what killed them, but that they could have potentially had it or been asymptomatic while something else killed them? Yeah, absolutely. And so, out of an abundance of caution, every single donor that we're that we're recovering organs from, we're doing a COVID test on. The, the, the organs may, in fact, be safe. We just don't have enough information to say that the COVID virus isn't residing in someone's liver or kidneys. In fact, we have some, We didn't, well, we know it's in their lungs, and it certainly can be in the heart. Um, so we don't know enough yet to, to, to rule those patients in. And you know, my suspicion at this point is we won't be using organs from COVID patients anytime soon. So that is the straightforward, frankly, unsurprising answer, that if you die and you have COVID when you die, you cannot be an organ donor. But that's not really the whole story. Uh, You know, the big challenge that we are facing is the number of donor offers that we are getting has substantially gone down. That's Ankit Barath. He's the chief of thoracic surgery at Northwestern Medicine Chicago. He's actually the person who introduced me to Kevin. The hospital calls us anytime there's a patient on a ventilator that meets some pretty simple criteria. Those are organ referrals. Those are down about 35% for us. And that's a big problem because even in the non-COVID time, there is a big deficit in the number of organs that we need each year. And as a result of that, up to 15% of the patients die while they're waiting for the organ to become available. So this crisis has really amplified that supply and demand gap. So we have substantially less number of donors and the need for those organs is accumulating. And and I feel like this might be a, a dumb question, but why are there fewer donor organs now than there would otherwise have been? Well, it's not a dumb question. It's a great question. So the, the, see, this is the thing. So see, the whole country is divided into different regions, um, and that is managed by what we call OPOs. OPOs meaning organ procurement organizations. That's what Kevin's group does. So if a donor was declared to be brain dead, then the OPOs get involved and they perform the donor management and then they start to start, you know, initiate the process of organ allocation. So that process takes uh, a few days, right? And during that time, your body still has to be kept alive so your organs don't die. So you need to stay in the ICU. You need nurses to take care of you. You need to be on a machine that pumps and circulates your blood. And you need to be on a ventilator. We were very concerned about taking up time in the ICUs. Because like I said, you know, patients declared brain dead. If they're not an organ donor, they disconnect the ventilator and the body is gone, right? The bed's available. If we, If the family says, yes, we're there for another day or two in the ICU, taking up resources. So now these hospitals that that are already overwhelmed with the COVID patients and and trying to prioritize those COVID patients, they don't necessarily have the resources to have a donor at that hospital, uh, you know, in the ICU, waiting for organs to get allocated. So the thought is that at the beginning of the pandemic, some potentially viable organs may have just gone unused. That some hospitals, especially smaller hospitals with fewer resources, they might have just been like, look, we don't have the ability to do organ donations right now. And this problem of potentially untapped organ donors, that might have also happened because of early problems with finding someone to test those organs for COVID. We started with a national company, but the turnaround time was in days. Hmm. Well, you can't have somebody who's brain dead in a family waiting for closure, sitting there waiting three or four days 
for a COVID test result. That's just not, especially now when we need the ICU beds, right? So in a lot of cases, doctors pretty much had to say no to organs that seemed viable because there wasn't a way to know for sure that they weren't infected. And Dr. Barath estimated that at least a couple months ago that they went from saying yes to about 50 percent of organs to only saying yes to 10 percent of organs. But there's also this bigger mystery that basically people aren't dying in the ways they need to die for organ donation. It's interesting. You can imagine Illinois is locked down um, pretty tightly. So we've seen the reduction in trauma deaths, um, car crashes, work-related accidents, things like that. People are not going out and doing things, and so they're not having accidents. That's a part of it, but a much bigger part is the disappearance of patients who've suffered traumatic heart attacks and strokes. Hmm. It makes up the bulk of our donation potential. Um, And we've seen a huge decrease in those numbers. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so this is the the like million dollar question because it's a national phenomena that when we've gone into this COVID lockdown, um, these patients have disappeared. So there's two theories. Uh, One is that if people aren't doing anything, they don't have heart attacks and strokes. Hmm. Um, I don't know that that sounds right to me. Um, The other is that people are afraid to go to the hospital. And so someone who may be having symptoms, who might have, you know, pre-COVID said, wow, um, you know, my partner, my spouse, please call 911, uh, are now saying, partner, spouse, don't call 911 because the last place I want to go is a hospital. And there is some anecdotal evidence uh, from New York that in-home deaths went up significantly during the peak of the COVID crisis. And and if a person dies at home like that, does that mean that they can no longer be an organ donor because they would have been dead for too long by the time ambulance comes? Correct. Yeah. Organ donation is really, really unique. You you have to suffer a neurological injury that makes you stop breathing um, and to the point where you lose enough oxygen that your brain actually no longer functions. But you know, you've been resuscitated and your heart has been restarted and, you know, you're, you're on a ventilator. Uh, if that doesn't happen, then organ donation is not a possibility. So basically, because people are dying at home, their potentially life-saving organs are going to waste. And Kevin and Dr. Brath have said that they're concerned about the long-term implications of this. Um, you know, it's just, an, it's interesting that when you think about it, Uh, Transplant recipients are kind of another victim of COVID. Especially when you think about the fact that people of color, and specifically Black people, are disproportionately represented on organ transplant waiting lists. And those are the same people who are worst affected by COVID. For us, our donation numbers are down 30%. So normally we do 130 organ transplants in a month. And we're not making it to 100, right? So those 30 or 35 patients who are not getting transplanted, those are ultimately going to turn into deaths because, you know, every organ saves somebody's life. A patient may not get transplanted today, might get transplanted next week, but then somebody else isn't going to get that organ. Um, And so, you know, it's not an insignificant number when you think about, you know, we do 35,000 transplants a year Um, If 20 or 30 percent of those go away for a month, that's a lot of victims, ancillary victims. So this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about with Charlotte, the listener who first reached out with the question about organ transplants. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I I hope that we can address this for long term. Yeah. I just felt like this idea of ancillary victims really stuck mm-hmm. with me. Like all these people who may end up dying because of the pandemic in ways that are really difficult to measure. It's like an aftershock. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of describing it. So one thing I should mention is that I did reach out to the United Network for Organ Sharing. They're an organization that manages the organ transplant system in the U.S. Um, Their chief medical officer is a guy named David Claussen, and he said that organ donations have actually bounced back pretty significantly in the past few months. And donations from deceased donors have started to get back to almost normal levels. You know, those initial uh, issues, I think, have in many respects, been addressed. And I think hospital resources are, have now adapted. And so the, the environment really has changed. And I think because of that, the system is functioning, uh, I think, relatively well at the moment. So he was a lot more optimistic. But of course, it is still possible for organ donations to get derailed as some parts of the country are hitting their COVID peak right now. And David also pointed out that the story is kind of different for living organ transplant, which is when you get either a kidney or a part of a liver from somebody who is alive. And those are way down and they've stayed down. Um, I'm Danae Simpson. I am a liver and kidney transplant surgeon. She is also at Northwestern Medicine. Between livers and kidneys, do you have one that's like secretly your favorite? A kidney can be like, you know, two to three hours. You know, you come in at a reasonable hour, you have a really satisfying case. Um, The kidney makes urine, you're super happy. And you go home, you have dinner with your family. Um, Livers, those are very different. And um, it can take a long time. And it can be really tiring. But then again, it's incredibly, incredibly satisfying when you finish that case. I wanted to talk to Dr. Simpson because she deals a lot with living donations. And living donations are pretty different because they're an elective surgery. You can just schedule them. You don't have to wait for somebody to die. And at least in the case of kidney transplants, you can kind of hold off on them because people can be kept alive with dialysis. So because of those things, surgeons like Dr. Simpson have actually been facing this ethical challenge. When you have a living donor who's coming forward and is generously offering to donate one of their kidneys or half of their liver, these are otherwise healthy people who don't need a surgery. And so the last thing that we want is to take someone who's a donor and not only putting them through this surgery, but putting them through a surgery during a pandemic where there was so many unknowns. And of course, there are always risks that are inherent to any type of surgery. But now there are way more risks. Risks with coming to the hospital, with potentially being exposed to the virus. It just doesn't, um, it's not ethical. It doesn't make any sense to take someone who's healthy and potentially make them unhealthy. And so we felt as a group and, and many, many transplant centers had the same thought process and and just put a halt on their living donor surgeries. At Northwestern, that halt on living donor surgeries was only temporary, and now they've opened back up. But as the pandemic has spread to other parts of the country, you have other hospitals that are now shutting down their elective surgeries. People were also very, very terrified of becoming immunosuppressed. Hmm. um, Because, you know, that that was the key word that was being thrown around whenever coronavirus, COVID, you know, however you want to call it, was being described on TV and everywhere else was immunosuppressed, immunocompromised. 
you know, at-risk individuals. Like like those are the people who are going to fare the worst if they do catch COVID. Exactly right. And that was the messaging and that's what patients were fearing. So we had many patients on the kidney side and even a few on the liver side that we called up and said, hey, we have an organ offer for you. And they said, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to come in. I, I'm too scared. Really? Um, they were scared. Yeah. Um, we had several patients uh, decline the offer. Wow. That's, I mean, that I, I know it must have been a really tough decision and it's not like it's not justified to have a real fear of COVID, but at the same time, I, I can't imagine having that kind of conversation. Yeah. Um, I think the first time we, we encountered that situation, we were all shocked. And we understood that it was not a situation that a patient took lightly. I mean, most of the time it involved tears and fear, you know, fear that um, there would be some sort of retaliation, you know, question that always followed is, you know, will I still be on the list? You know, can I still get offers later? Which of course the answers to that were yes, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and, you know, the only thing we can do is, is counsel the patient on what we know about the risks. Um, so that was the bulk of what I wanted to tell you about. So it's not very positive. (laughs) It really, it really isn't. It It is not very positive. But the one thing I would say is that even though there is so much fear and anxiety about organ transplants right now, there is also a lot of hope. I would have to say that I was so determined to get new lungs that I was full speed ahead. Dr. Brath, the lung surgeon, I actually talked to one of his patients. Her name is Barbara Creed. How are you doing? Oh, I feel great. Uh, I feel uh, a lot more energy than I had when I was on oxygen. Barbara is from Oak Park, Illinois, outside of Chicago. She's 67 years old. She's a retired music teacher. So I taught general music to three-year-olds all the way up to eighth graders, and I loved it. It's a very energetic job, but it just began to be too hard for me. Barbara had developed this disorder where the blood flow from her heart to her lungs was really restricted. When you have pulmonary arterial hypertension, The pressure builds up in the heart, and it gradually enlarges, and it's hard to catch your breath. Um, My classroom was on the second floor, so there were a lot of stairs to climb. I had to carry oxygen tanks, you know, wherever I went, and gradually my oxygen needs kept rising. I started on two liters a minute, uh, but I ended up on six. So in 2016, she had to retire. And year after year, her lung problems were getting worse and worse. It was getting harder and harder for her to breathe. And then finally last fall, her cardiologist told her straight up, like, look, I think it's time for a more permanent solution to the fact that your lungs are failing. He said, you know, this is not sustainable. We should really get you on the list, which, you know, took me by surprise a little bit. But um Once he explained uh, that that was my hope, uh, I was all for it. But once COVID came into the picture, things got a lot more complicated. So, yeah, we had to inform her that um, your wait times are going to be much longer and there is a risk that, you know, you may have a mortality. And to her, you know, family, we had to explain that, that there is a chance that the organs may not become 
available. And that we see that, you know, um, I've heard from my colleagues across the country that a number of patients have died while waiting for the organ under these circumstances. So in addition to being worried about not getting an offer for lungs in the first place, Barbara was also really nervous about catching COVID before getting the lungs. Because if you come down with COVID and you're on the transplant waiting list, you're actually temporarily removed or, or paused on the list. And you can't accept any new organs until the virus completely clears your system. At what point did you start to realize not only am I going through this, you know, really challenging and and probably scary medical procedure, but that all of a sudden this is happening in the middle of a pandemic? Right. That was a big surprise to us. I didn't think they were going to be doing lung transplants because several of the other big hospitals here in Chicago were not. Um, But I have been in touch all along with the social worker at Northwestern, his name is Mike. And uh, in one of our calls, I said, well, they're certainly not going to go forward with this, are they? And he said, oh, no, we're still doing transplants. You will still have lungs. He said, if you want, he said, you can always turn them down um, and you won't lose your place on the list. So I said, I'm going for it. I said, I'm going to do this. And 58 days later, uh, the call came in. Wow. Uh, They tested the lungs for COVID. They tested me for COVID like three times. Um, So, you know, I knew I was good. I knew the lungs were good. And we went full speed ahead. And Barbara was excited for her new lungs and also very nervous about the surgery. But what struck Barbara was that when she was in the hospital getting ready for the transplant, that everyone around her was just so excited for her, too. They knew that I was moving to the seventh floor for uh, the lung transplant. And so they got me all ready on the bed, wheeled it down the hall. And when we got to the point where the elevators were, all of the nurses on the floor were clapping for me in the hallway. Hmm. It was such a touching moment. Uh, It just put the biggest smile on my face so that by the time we got to, uh, you know, arrival in the transplant uh, prep area... I was just feeling really good. I, I kind of got myself centered and, and I was happy to greet all the doctors before they knocked me out, but they looked happy too. Uh, after the uh, transplant, everyone who stopped in my room uh, congratulated me and was just so happy to see me up and about. They told me that they were delighted to be able to do this for me and especially Uh, delighted at the quality of the lungs that they had, that these were really great lungs. And I felt that way immediately, uh, that they, they just filled me, you know, perfectly. When I first saw Dr. Barat, he seemed very happy. And uh, I I can't help but feel that this was a great success story for them. Hmm. Uh, It certainly is for me. (laughs) That's really special. I mean, I think it's extremely brave what Barbara did during this time. Um, she probably would have anyway, but it it's a scary thing to do. I mean, brand new lungs, it sounds like it would be a no-brainer, but that's a, that's a scary thing to say, I don't know you, give me your lungs. <laughs> and one thing that I thought was kind of heartening from how Barbara talked about all of this is that 
when all these people were dying in the hospital, that her surgery actually gave a lot of hope and comfort to the doctors and nurses that were caring for her. See, you know, there is a lot of distress going on in the hospital and everywhere else. You know, every day you hear just, you know, things getting worse and not improving. And we've seen, you know, a lot of sick patients every day. So in, in, in those circumstances, to see someone as sick as Barbara leave the hospital and in about two weeks and, and safely, and then her husband came to pick her up uh, and, you know, they hugged and they had tears in their eyes. Just the joy, you know, that um, they expressed, you know, made all of us really feel a sense of accomplishment and, uh, you know, just gave us hope that we can um, continue to make a difference in patients, even in the, in the state of crisis. I think in looking back on this, I think it was these incredible ICU nurses and doctors were dealing with tons of death um, and feeling very frustrated about not having positive outcomes. And here was one thing that they could go home and say, hey, you know what? We saved five people today through organ donation. And that made me really happy to know that we brought at least some ray of light to a group of people who are just living in a really dark cave. That is what I was able to find out about organ transplants. Thank you. I still, I'm still on a kind of dark note, even if it's not. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for a really smart question that I think helped find some really interesting facets to what's going on right now. This was well answered. Thank you so much. Oh, good. That makes me feel good. If I had all of your time, I would just give you so many questions. <laughs> My mind never stops. <laughs> it's good to be that way. That question was from listener Charlotte Cudd of Jacksonville, Florida. Our interview with Barbara Creed took place earlier in the summer, and last week I checked back in with her to see how she's been doing. She told me that her recovery has been going really well, and she's been taking lots of long walks, which is a thing that she was definitely not able to do before. Also, Dr. Barath, her lung surgeon, made some pretty major news this summer. He successfully performed the first double lung transplant to save the life of a COVID victim in the U.S. He's hoping that organ transplants will be a new source of hope for people suffering from the effects of COVID. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers, and I am taking some time off. Our friend and amazing journalist Nicole Ellis will be guest hosting for the next two weeks. You've heard her on here before, and we're very excited to have her back. I'll be returning later in August. Until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.